You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be taking a break starting August 5th through Friday, August 26th, when I will return with an interview with Chris Kander, author of A Gracious Neighbor. This is a great time to get caught up on any past episodes that you haven't had time to listen to yet. And if there's one that you particularly enjoy, please share it on social media. It really helps me find new listeners when that happens. So thank you in advance. In addition, if you're caught up on all of my episodes, I would love for you to join my Patreon group if you're looking for more fun book conversations. I have all sorts of bonus episodes there, plus a newsletter and a Facebook group. I'd love to have you. Today, I am chatting with Jillian McAllister about Wrong Place, Wrong Time. Jillian is the Sunday Times top 10 bestselling author of Everything But the Truth, The Good Sister, The Choice, The Evidence Against You, How to Disappear, and the Richard and Judy book club pick that night. I absolutely loved Wrong Place, Wrong Time. It will be my top thriller of the year. I selected it as one of my August Buzz Reads picks, and I just can't speak highly enough about it. It's a fabulous read. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water, once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Jillian. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I am fine as well. And I have been so excited to speak with you because I just absolutely loved Wrong Place, Wrong Time. And I have so many questions. So I can't wait to dive in and ask you all about the book. Oh, thank you. I'm, uh, it's my favorite topic. So <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Perfect. Well, what I usually do for those that won't have read the book yet, I ask the author to give me a quick synopsis. So can you just give your elevator pitch for Wrong Place, Wrong Time really quickly? Yes, I definitely do. So it tells the story of Jen and Todd. Uh, Jen is Todd's mother. She's waiting up for him late one night in October. He's late, he's past his curfew, and eventually he ambles up the road, and in front of her, he murders a complete stranger. So then Todd confesses to murder on the street. He refuses a lawyer. He's remanded in custody and charged with murder. And Jen heads home to her house, which is now a crime scene, and falls asleep in despair. And the next morning, she wakes up 
ready to fight, ready to find a lawyer to defend him, ready to find out why he did it. And she realizes it's the day before the crime and Todd is in his room and has no idea what she's talking about. And then the next time she sleeps, she wakes up and it's the day before that. And it asks the question, how do you stop a murder when it's already happened? I just thought this was the most clever premise. I love time travel. I like stories that go back in time like this. So I was so excited to dive in and it just met every expectation and more. I have literally been telling everyone I know, pre-order this book. You must read it. It comes out August 2nd because I just think it's going to be the biggest hit. Oh, thank you. That is so kind. That is music to my ears. Well, how did you land on the idea for it? I know you have a little bit of this in your author's note, but I'd love for you to expand on that and explain where the idea came from and then how you implemented it. Yeah, I think it was a few things. I think, as I say, I watched Russian Doll. And although it's a completely different conceit, really, I suddenly thought the sort of Groundhog Day, you know, time loop, Palm Springs type conceit is not really seen very often in literature, and particularly in crime fiction. And it felt like a sort of untapped mind to me. And it was really then I start, I think I started to think then that I would like to do that. And then it was a few months later that I suddenly thought, what about a crime that is committed? And that is the trigger for the time loop. And then the whole book basically just fell into place, which I know is a very kind of smug thing to happen. And, you know, a very sort of, um, it's the dream process. And it, it definitely isn't always that way with me. This book is a bit of an outlier in that respect, but it just kind of fell into place like snowflakes. It was just, um, and then it was really easy to write, which um, always surprises people. But um, I've since had a nightmare with my next book. So, you know, <laughs> if there's any aspiring authors listening, take heart. Well, I was just fascinated by your writing process with this one and what that was going to look like. Because it was so much fun to read it as she goes further, further back in time. So what was it like plotting that out? I mean, did you sit down and plot every single bit out? Or did you try to work through that as you wrote? Yeah, um, I do plan and I did plan this novel. And I, I think the reason why it was sort of relatively easy going to write was because I did have a meticulous timeline. I had one going backwards. So in the order, Jen finds out clues in. So, you know, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday. And then I had one going forwards, which was called What Happened. And that went from the date the book goes back to, to the present day. And that was just what has actually happened here? And how can that tessellate with what Jen finds? And then I wrote it over the multiple lockdowns we had here. And every morning, I would just take an index card from each timeline with the same date on. And I'd be like, this is the date I'm writing today. How did you decide that each day that Jen landed on was going to be something that had relevance to what was going on? Yeah, so that is something Jen learns relatively early on. It it starts with just going yesterday, the day before, the day before that. And then eventually she realizes she's skipping days and she is landing on, like you say, significant days. And I just Again, with this novel, I feel as though I sort of discovered it rather than made it up myself because that just made complete sense to me that I think it can stagnate with, you know, 
if it took place over a month and it was day minus one, day minus two, day minus three, I think that could get repetitive. And I think that is probably the risk with a sort of Groundhog Day book. And when I was planning it, I suddenly just got this feeling that I wanted to write something expansive and with a really deep roots in the past. And that, of course, you can't write, you know, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say it goes back about 8,000 days. And of course, you can't write 8,000 chapters. So it became quite logical for me that I had to pinpoint these turning points in her life to land on. Well, it was one of the things I was curious about when I started reading, because I thought going back day by day by day, which is what I thought was going to happen originally, would eventually get a little repetitive and you wouldn't have something maybe super relevant or super exciting happening every single day. So you'd have a sentence or two sentences on some days. So I wondered how you would handle that. So then when she started going back, in larger chunks of time, it made a lot more sense to me. Yeah. And that would, that would have been an interesting way to handle it actually. And it never really crossed my mind to do that. And I think, I think generally in fiction, some authors and me included do have the tendency to, you know, if something happens on a Monday in a book, even a totally linear book, I then want to write about all of Monday, all of Tuesday, all of Wednesday, because that's how you experience life. Right. But actually I think the reader, you know, if you say, there's something hidden in an old quarry and we're going to go there tomorrow. The reader wants to turn the page and say, the quarry is, uh, uh, you know, and then a description and then the character's there. That's what the reader wants. And I think that is actually pace. And so I, yeah, it seemed quite natural to me to actually start to pinpoint those um, actual sort of hallmark moments of her life. Absolutely. Because then you're just jumping to those days versus just reading a lot of filler. I thought the way you did it was perfect. I just was curious before I picked the book up, exactly how it was going to play out. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways. And and in an earlier draft, you know, she revisited the crime each night when she slept and she got to observe the effect of the changes she had made. So she she did re-witness the crime multiple times. And I got rid of that fairly early on because it, I found it confusing when she was going back like a thousand days and then suddenly in her sleep, she was back at the picture window at night watching the murder again. Um, it, it, it was confusing for the reader, like where have all those days in the middle gone? Um, so I, I got rid of that. But there, there were like the structure to this novel is quite fundamental and it did take me a little bit of trial and error to sort of land on, I think, what I hope was the right one. I would think it definitely would to kind of keep trying on different things, seeing how they worked. And that's such an interesting premise that every night she would revisit it. So I'm sure there were lots of different ways to look at it. And to try them out and figure out, okay, this is working, this isn't working. It must have just been fascinating and probably a little frustrating sometimes. Yeah, I think that is, you know, I'm just going through that process with my my ninth book. I've just delivered the book after one place from time and I'm starting to think about my ninth book. And it is just, for me, it's like a maze and you just draw a line through the maze and then you hit a, you know, a dead end and then you have to go back to the beginning. And I've learned not to put pen to paper too early in this stage because you will take so many wrong turns before you get the right one. Um, And I think it is just the process, as frustrating as that is. (laughs) I think that's right. And there are so many twists and turns. And that's one of the things that I just loved about it. I would think I knew exactly where the book was going. And then I was like, oh, something totally different than I expected, which is just the sign of a great thriller. And that must have been so much fun to weave those in. Yeah, it was. And they sort of 
they did kind of write themselves those. I never really felt it needed to be very twisty. I thought the conceit was so sort of large that it would have been interesting regardless. But the the kind of dual timeline lent itself to those twists really with with Ryan's narration. And then the misdirects within that were quite easy because of what I decided had happened. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't, twists don't really come too easily to me as, a, as an author. I, I've got a huge one in my next one and it really was a bit of a headache for me for the whole time writing because you kind of have to conceal things from your reader for a really long time. And I tend to play quite straight hand with my reader usually. So yeah, they were. I, I mean, the readers love them though. They, they, those misdirects are what I hear about every time somebody messages me. It's always those twists. I think that's become such a thing in thriller literature is the twists and turns. So for me, that sometimes can be really problematic because a lot of times, or not a lot of times, sometimes they seem very forced and very thrown in because they, the, the author feels like they need to be. So I'm always kind of like, oh, how's that going to work? But yours just melded right into the story, which I think is what they all should do and probably why readers are really commenting because they're not even really thinking there's going to be a twist and then there is. Yeah, I always think about Sixth Sense when I plot a twist because I always think it shouldn't be a kind of, oh my God, what moment like that comes from nowhere. I think it should be more of an explanation like, oh my God, like, oh, I finally understand. I think that's what a great twist should do. And then you you can't believe that you didn't guess it. Like, that's what the best twists do for me. So I try to, obviously, it's nothing like Sixth Sense, and I don't think there's ever going to be a better twist ever. But I try to sort of have that in mind. Like, it's not really about tricking the reader or just saying, you know, all along you thought X did it and actually it's Y. For me, it's kind of like, you, you know, you thought this person was narrating and it's actually this person and I just made you assume. Like, I think that's kind of the, the clever twists. Sixth Sense is a great analogy because I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at is that it's more that the reader's perspective is not allowing them to understand what's happening. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I was really missing something. And a lot of times it's not something you could have predicted, which I think is better but it's also not out of left field. So I don't know how to explain that any better other than to say it makes perfect sense when you read it and you look back and think, oh, wow, but it's not something that there are all these little breadcrumbs coming along and either it's easy to predict or like I said before, it just comes from nowhere. Yeah, and I think Sixth Sense, you know, the novel is actually, it's already about what the twist is about. You know, if there was no ghosts in it, that would be a crap twist. (laughs) But it's literally because... I think it's so satisfying because you know the protagonist, and I hope it's okay to spoil. I feel like Sixth Sense is, you know, everybody knows the twist, don't they? But you know the protagonist can see dead people. And therefore, of course, you should consider are the people he's interacting with dead or alive, but you just don't. And I think that's the genius of it. I agree. And talking about perspective actually leads me into another question because that was one of the things that I think resonated with me so much about your book. As a mom of three kids, the going back in time and Jen is putting herself back into situations she's already lived, but she has so much more knowledge. So her perspective is completely different. And I loved that. Like, I think that's what appeals to me so much about time travel is two things. One, being able to go back in time and live experiences you've already lived from a different perspective, but also to see people that you haven't seen in a long time, like my grandparents or my mother. 
But I think also that applies to seeing a younger Todd. You know, she's really thrilled to see her son at a younger age again and remember what that was like. And it just kind of brought her back. And I loved how well you brought those feelings to the surface. Yeah, that is, I hear that a lot. And it's such an honor to hear it from parents. Because I I just think it must be, you know, parenting Todd as a two-year-old is not the same as Todd as a 10-year-old. And by the time Todd is 10, the toddler Todd is gone forever. And I find that such a poignant thing. And so, you know, I, I kind of really like to write about parenthood and I find it very interesting. And I think that added that kind of loadedness to the narrative of you're going back and you're finding things that you thought were lost forever. And I think that's such a human desire to do that. Like, you know, as you say, to, to see people that have passed away, but also to see somebody's past self. And there's there's no more, like that looms really large in childhood because children change so much. Like I just, I found it so fascinating. I couldn't help but include it. Well, and you have a great sentence that's toward the end of the book, but will not be a spoiler. You say, perhaps the strangest thing about traveling back through the past is the changes people themselves undergo. So you're realizing, okay, Todd and Kelly are so different now than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I thought that was so interesting because we don't really think about that day to day. And you're only interacting with everybody's present person, of course. And so you sometimes, until you see a photo or somebody reminds you of something, you don't always remember, oh my gosh, you know, this is what we were like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And this is what it was like parenting a two-year-old versus parenting an 18-year-old. It just really brought a lot of those thoughts to the surface and that that really resonated with me. And as I have recommended it to other people and they've been posting about it, they're all saying the same thing. So I think that's the other aspect of the book. In addition to being a thriller, you really have so much humanity and parenting and being a mother and just all these different topics that a lot of times people aren't thinking as much about when they're reading a thriller. Yeah. And I always think with thrillers, like, I feel like why do one thing when you can do it all? And, you know, it's one place, wrong time is a love story and it is an homage to parenting and it's a family drama and it's a why done it. And I just kind of think, like, I read a lot of Tana French and I think she does that so well when you don't have to sacrifice character to write a thriller with a great plot. You can kind of do it all. And for me, that that poignancy, particularly of parenthood, but of many things. And like you say, the way, you know, why not write a, a, a cracking plot, but also a, a sort of, I don't know, a, yeah, a sort of rumination on how people change throughout the years. Like, I think that's kind of life, isn't it? And I think fiction should sort of reflect that. I think so too. So you've set the bar very high for thriller writers. (laughs) Thank you. Well, the other thing we talked a tiny bit about a minute ago, and then I think I got off on other aspects of perspective. But the other thing that Jen realizes as she goes back in time perspective-wise is Kelly, her husband, would have been doing something that at the time she read one way, but because she has so much more data and information and understanding of what's happening based on the future, when she goes back, she now totally reinterprets some of the things that he's doing. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the story as well. Yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of my experience of life. You know, if I went back five years, I would be a different person and so would my husband. And I find that quite an interesting thing in, you know, the long terrain of a marriage, like when do dynamics set in and why? And 
would you go back and look at 25 year old you or 30 year old you and think that was a bit crass or that was very emotionally unintelligent or yeah could can you look back with sympathy and I just I mean I could sort of pontificate about that for hours really because nobody ever gets to do it like you know I never get to re-witness my past and kind of reflect on it I think that's right and I think that's probably why the book is resonating so much with people is because we'd all love to do that go back and relive some aspects of our lives but also go back and witness the way we handled things five years ago ten years ago whenever it is Exactly, exactly. And I think, I do think a lot of time travel fiction and stories have that desire at their heart. Like, I almost can't believe that I won't get to do that, but I know logically that I won't. But you sort of almost think, imagine if you could revisit your own childhood and it's gone forever. And I think that is a very hard thing for humans to accept. I think that's right. And that was another question I had for you. Did it really make you reevaluate things in your life or did it make you really think a lot about what it would have been like to go back and revisit earlier stages of your life as you were writing because you were so focused on that topic as you wrote? Yeah, it sort of did. I think, I mean, the lockdowns, I think, you know, you know for me, and I had a privileged experience of the pandemic because, you know, I, I wasn't ill from it and nobody I know got seriously ill and you know I worked from home anyway etc etc but I think it was quite a reflective period of my life generally because you weren't seeing the people that usually take up the time and space in your head and I was more able to sort of reevaluate some of those relationships and definitely writing such a sort of reflective story I think did make me think about patterns in my own life and relationships I would think it would, because reading it really made me think about some of those things. And so I'm sure writing it over the period of time it took to plot it out, write it, edit it, I would think a lot of those things would just be in the forefront of your mind. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think probably I write these things in order to make sense of those things, rather than sort of by accident. Like I can often look back at things I was writing at certain times of my life and see that I was preoccupied with certain events or themes, you know, like just as I was wanting to leave my job as a lawyer, I I wrote a novel where I didn't realise this, but every single character was self-employed. And I think it was just my own desires sort of popping up. And I think that happens a lot with with fiction. That's so thought-provoking in and of itself, the idea that you're taking those things that are preoccupying you in regular life and then putting them into your fiction sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. So in this instance, the pandemic, which was definitely, I think, life-changing for many of us, is now what kind of had you writing about going back and revisiting different things in your life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's a form of therapy, I think, for writers. Although whenever I directly try to write about something I've experienced, it never works, but it will pop up metaphorically, maybe. You know, Jen felt quite stuck. And I think a lot of people did in the pandemic. I think that's right. And I think it made people just reflect on their life and things that maybe they weren't happy with the way they were going. And so when we were all sitting at home, it was a good opportunity to say, you know what, I maybe need to change things up a little bit. And people had a little more time, most of us, not everyone, as you mentioned, but, you know, most of us had the time to, to reevaluate. 
Yeah, I definitely did. You know, I'm not sure I would have written Wrong Place, Wrong Time without the pandemic because I had so much time to really take a big swing at a complicated plot. And I just worked like I worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, like I, I because I had nothing else to do. And I think, you know, that's obviously, again, you know, a privileged experience of the pandemic. I, you know, I have no trauma from it. But I think, yeah, I, I just, I do think those things pop up in in fiction. Like, I don't yet know with the novel I've just delivered what I was experiencing that I was processing, but I will know in a couple of years, I think, why I chose to write about to write about certain things. That's so interesting. So now I have to read the next one when it comes <laughs> out, and then we can talk again, and you can tell me what it is you think you have now decided you were processing. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, what was the highlight of writing Wrong Place, Wrong Time? It was the moment when Jen is reparenting Todd when he's three, and she calls his name, and he, he looks over his shoulder at her. And it's a complete turning point in the novel. And I can't say why for spoilers, but it's the moment Jen realizes something profound. And it's not as plotty as you might imagine. It's not a huge reveal, but it is for Jen. So it was that. And I sort of wrote it and read it and thought, I know that that will be in the printed book um, because it's it, it's authentic. And that's when writing is going well. That is the feeling you get. Well, I was also wondering, as I was reading, how the book would end, and obviously we're not going to talk about the ending in terms of spoiling it, but did you always know how it was going to end, or was that something that you had to work through as you wrote? I did always know, but some of the machinations of feeding what Jen has learned through surprised me, because it's a bit of a head spinner, you know, when you sort of line it all up, like everything that she's changed, it, it changes her life fairly significantly. And I, I had to sort of work that through quite carefully. But I did always know, and it, you know, it's if you've read my fiction, you would know what to expect from an ending. And this one delivers that. Because that is always the difficult thing in these type of stories, I think, when there's a lot going on and there is some twists and turns and there's a slightly different format or a greatly different format in this instance that the ending, the risk that the ending is going to kind of ruin it all, at least as a reader. And so I was like, oh, I hope the ending is going to be good. And I got to the end and I was like, okay, that is so well done. And so I was just <laughs> kind of curious if you always knew that was where it was going to go, how it would all wrap up, or whether that was something that you had to work through as you were going. But it sounds like you you had that from the beginning. Yeah, I do often know the ending. I think I'm also quite a fussy thriller reader with endings. And it's hard because I don't like it when they get crazy and, you know, everybody starts killing everybody and tying each other up in basements and <laughs> all of that. But I also don't really like a damp squib. And, you know, there's the whole sort of Chekhov's gun theory about if something is, if there's a gun on the chair in the first act, you have to fire it by the third act. And I do live by that in fiction. And I really wanted the reveal to deliver and I hope it did. Um, but then after that, you know, you have to have the redemption and people have to lose things and gain things, I think, to have a satisfying ending. And I'm quite fussy with it. So it's the ending I would want to read. Um, and you can only hope that my readers also like the things I like. <laughs> I think they definitely do. 
when I was going back through it this morning, preparing for this interview, I was flipping through the whole book, but then I reread the end just to kind of have it back with me. And I was getting chills all over again. So that's to me the sign of a really great ending. Wow. Is it the epilogue that you liked? It's the part before that. Okay. I mean, I liked that part as well, but but how Jen's part of the story wrapped up. Yeah. Because I kept thinking the whole time, how is that going to work? You know, with the whole time traveling and everything that happened, like, how is she going to wrap this up? And so I just got to the end and I thought, okay, hurrah, like that was really <laughs> well done. And then I liked the epilogue as well, but I really liked the way Jen's story wrapped up. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. It was, um, it needed to wrap up. You know, if you ask why on earth would someone do this on on page one, you really have to have a great answer <laughs> on the yeah. final page. Um, so I'm I'm glad it delivered for you. I guess that's what I was trying to say. And you said it much more succinctly and clearly is if you start out with this really great premise, you have to have a really great ending. And so it's always stressful as you're reading and loving the premise to think, I hope the ending is going to match up. So I was just very glad it did. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, it's like an hourglass, isn't it? And I think, you know, it will fall over if if the bottom is is thin on the page and we've all read thrillers that do that and I've definitely had some drafts where the ending just did not you know didn't live up to that promise and I, yeah I just think I don't know I think you just have to have a great reason <laughs> for why he did it and it did take me a long time to come up with one but I'm very glad I did. But I think that's exactly it you have to have a great reason that readers are going to be like yes versus some reason that you're like, well, I don't know that that was worth all of that, or that came out of nowhere. You know, I think you have to just really have it be something solid that that readers are going to be like, ah, yes, that totally makes sense to me. Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, it's easy to kind of in a synopsis say, oh, he killed them from revenge. He was, you know, annoyed about something that happened 20 years ago. But as a reader, I'd be like, well, why now? And do people really do that? Like, I wouldn't kill someone out of revenge. You know, I, I do like my characters to act largely in the way I would. And so for this 18-year-old who is so happy-go-lucky and so sort of simplistic and transparent, for him to do that, the, the bar was set very high. But I sort of think that's what makes it compelling because Jen cannot understand it. And so the reader is sort of desperate to know. I think that's exactly right. She's so confused and so blindsided that you're thinking, okay, I, I've got to know what happened here. And I, I am the exact same way. Like, I like thriller characters to act pretty much like I would act. I mean, you know, I can obviously give them a little more latitude. But I, just these people who are just doing all of this completely crazy stuff, it just drives me crazy because I'm like, no one would do that. And maybe other people do do that. And I just don't know those people. But I prefer reading about people who I feel like are acting pretty rationally. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure in my books, nobody kills anybody unless they basically have no other option. They're either backed into a corner or they lose their temper for completely understandable reasons that have been breadcrumbed throughout or yet like they have no other choice. Like that's because that's, the you know, it's a very uncommon <laughs> to murder somebody. And I think especially for, you know, it's not like a we need to talk about Kevin type book, like Todd is not that kind of character. It's quite the opposite, actually. So he needed to, there needed to be an enormous backstory um, for him to do that, which is kind of why, you know, 
this is a coincidence really, but I was very glad that I had written it backwards because in the writing of it, I was suddenly like, this needs to go back decades in order for him to do this. And that's kind of made sense of the format almost that I had chosen to tell it in. But you know, your point about we need to talk about Kevin brings up another really interesting point about your book. Again, why I think it's resonating with readers is that these are genuinely good people who are living their lives and you you do like them. And I think that also makes this such a compelling thriller because a lot of the times the people are unlikable and they're doing despicable things and it's hard to kind of relate to what they're doing and understand exactly what's happening or they're on drugs or they're drinking too much or whatever all of the other problems are. But these are just regular people living their lives, you know, doing the best they can. And I think that that really appeals to people to read about those type of characters put in in situations that are untenable for them. Yeah, and it's the situation for me that is usually extraordinary. I am the same as you. Like, There's definitely a genre of thrillers where you're sort of supposed to root for the psychopath, the murderer, and it's kind of a fun romp sometimes, or like people find it really dark and interesting. But I just personally, the one the the books that really I take into my heart are the books where I really do relate to the characters and they're, like you say, quite ordinary people. But it does make it hard because you have to get make the circumstances so extraordinary, but not feel like, you know, kind of a huge coincidence or just a a series of like tragedies like one after the other like you have to kind of get them into a realistic situation where they would act the way you want them to and that is you know that's quite hard especially sort of seven books in I do find I'm having to rack my brains more to sort of get people to do what I want them to do because I've sort of already done some of those things in other books. But I think that's what makes the story so much more intriguing because it is the situation. So you're not having these crazy people who you can just then have do whatever they're going to do because they're already crazy or upset or whatever it is. But instead, you've got these kind of everyday people in a good way. I mean, I really liked your characters, but they're put in these situations that make them do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. And so I guess for me, that's really what made the story all the more appealing. Yeah, and I think it would have been quite easy to make Todd quite sullen and secretive and it be kind of a different kind of vibe with the mother kind of trying to work out why he's become that way. But as I wrote him, I thought it was far more compelling if he's this completely sunny, you know, open, happy-go-lucky kind of nerd. Um, like I, Todd sort of wrote himself and and I did wonder would people not expect this in a thriller? But actually, for me, it just made it more compelling. And I just had to kind of trust that instinct. No, I think you went the exact right direction. Well, what about the title and the cover? I love, love, love the cover. And I really like the title a lot too. So tell me how the title came about. And then I know you have a different UK cover than US cover. And let's talk about both. Yeah, so I think it's quite common to have a different US and UK cover because they're different markets. Definitely. But the title is the same. And yeah, it came, it's actually for such a kind of hooky book, in my opinion, it was quite hard to title. And we did, I had called it the day before um, for a really long time. But then my latest UK release over here was called That Night. And it, it got Richard and Judy and it sold quite well. And we wondered if people might think the day before was like a prequel. And we didn't want them to. So 
yeah, it took us a really long time and a lot of brainstorming to sort of settle on something that, you know, hints at time element, but still sounds like a thriller and still sounds interesting in its own right. Well, I think it works perfectly for the book. And I just love that US cover. Every time I look at it, I'm just like, okay, this is the perfect cover. Did you just love it when they showed it to you? Yeah, they literally just sent it. And I was like, perfect, like that's the cover. And, you know, it isn't always that way. Um, Sometimes you go, there's a lot of back and forth on covers, but yeah, they just nailed it, I think. I think they did too. So I haven't read any of your backlist yet. This was my first introduction to your books. I obviously loved this one. Which one would you recommend next for me? Well, my second book in the US is called The Choice. And it's not similar, but it has a similar vibe in that it's about a woman called Joanna who is harassed on a night out by a man. And she believes that he's followed her out of the club. You know, she rebuffs him. She leaves the club. She believes that he's followed her. And out of nowhere, out of fear, as a woman hearing footsteps late at night, she pushes him down a flight of stairs and he lies at the bottom, presumed dead. And then the narrative splits. And in one version, she hands herself in and she goes to trial for attempted murder. And in the other, she goes on the run. So like it's a sliding doors novel. I was just going to say sliding doors. Yeah, it's the same kind of, you know, I wrote that many years ago, but um, it's the same thing of me going, sliding doors has never been done in crime. Why is this the case? And then thinking about really the right to walk home alone that, you know, women face and thinking about really we're sort of damned if we do and damned if we don't in that situation. Because if you defend yourself, what happens to Joanna isn't pleasant, but also, you know, what what are you supposed to do in that situation? That's what that novel is asking. Um, So yeah, I think you would enjoy it. Well, what about your podcast? You have a podcast called Honest Authors. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So I co-host it with my friend and colleague, I suppose, Holly Seddon. Um, And the USP really is basically that we're the only traditionally published best-selling authors who are telling all And it's kind of a behind the scenes look at everything you would kind of want to know about the life we lead. You know, like we talk about there's nothing really off limits. Um, We talk about, you know, foreign rights and, you know, what it feels like to be published stateside and in the UK and, you know, what it feels like to get option for TV or things like that. And um, it's really taken off. And we're currently doing a, a season where we get a different author on every episode and we just ask them how they write a book. But we do it kind of forensically so we just had Lisa Jewell on and we literally said okay day one you get the idea what do you do on day two you know who do you email how do you take that idea you know into a draft when do you open your laptop and write chapter one and and we like that kind of granular detail um so yes I, I enjoy it a lot it's a bit of a passion project okay that's fascinating and I hadn't really thought to ask some of those types of questions I'm gonna have to go listen now Because it would be interesting to hear the day-to-day aspects of writing a book in terms of what you're talking about. Exactly what do you do? You get the idea and how do you move forward? Exactly. And we had a season where we interviewed sort of industry experts. So we interviewed an editor at a publishing house and she told us exactly what goes on at an acquisitions meeting, how they're targeted, you know, what target they have to reach and with how many books and how they decide whether a book will sell in one shop or another. And just fascinating, like stuff that really, I think, ought to be talked about. And people are happy to talk about it. It's just you need to ask them. (laughs) 
Absolutely. I've launched a series within my podcast that's the first Thursday of every month called Behind the Scenes. And it's a little similar to what you're talking about. And I've done an audiobook narrator and a, an, a scout and an interior book designer and a cover designer and a publicist and talking about a lot of those things that do happen behind the scenes. Wow. Yeah. Scouts as well. They're, they're super interesting and mysterious, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. it was. I learned a ton. I know. It was fascinating to me. I'll have to go listen. And the interior book designer, that's the episode that I've had so much feedback about because I think one, so many people had no idea that was even a job. And then two, there's so much involved in it. And so, yeah, it was, it's been very interesting. I've learned a ton. I bet. Wow. I'll go listen. Well, before we wrap up on this note of talking about authors and their books, what have you read recently that you really liked? So I'm currently reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which I think has just hit the New York Times bestseller list, which is about two kids who meet in a hospital and they invent a computer game and they make it big. And I'm just loving it so far. Like it's got a little bit of a Taylor Jenkins Reid vibe with the sort of writing about an ascent to fame in a, in a quite a niche industry. Like I think Taylor Jenkins Reid does that so well. So I'm really enjoying that. And I also just finished The It Girl by Ruth Ware and The Family Remains by Lisa Jewell, both excellent thrillers. I really liked The It Girl. I loved the Oxford setting. Yeah, me too. And I think Ruth Ware is just such a versatile writer. Like she could write anything and I would read it, but she just, some of them are like Agatha Christie-like, some of them are about tech-like. So, you know, well, the one's about like a smart house and this one was she just nailed the 90s Oxford scene. Like, I just think she could write anything. I agree. And I love The Death of Mrs. Westaway, which is so different than the rest of her books. So I agree. She really does write a lot of different types of mysteries and thrillers. Yeah, she does. She does. She's one of the most versatile writers working today, I think. Have you read Gabrielle Zevin's earlier books? No, I haven't. It was She was not on my radar. And then this book was suddenly everywhere. So no, I haven't. But have you? Are they are they as good? I am. I'm a huge fan of hers. Oh, I love AJ Fickery. And I, she has a YA book called Elsewhere that I really like and Young Jane Young. So yes, I'm actually midway through Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow myself. And I just really like the way she writes. And she tackles very different topics each time she writes a book as well. Yeah, definitely. A sort of writer of the world. She sort of just wants to comment on what the world's like, um, which is act- that's exactly what I look for in fiction, really. Yeah. And that's such an interesting premise with video games, since they're so relevant to today's world. I know. And I think we all played them as kids, even if some of us don't anymore as adults. And it, there's such a... It, she's right about sort of when you play a video game with someone, there's a kind of intimacy there that, that you can't get in, in other ways in quite the same way. And the other thing I have found about it is with a 16-year-old son, is that's something that they do together socially. So he's upstairs in our playroom playing, but he's on headphones and he's talking with six of his friends. And, you know, they'll do that for several hours. And it is sometimes the way they are getting together, versus, especially during the pandemic. I mean, it was a savior mm-hmm. for him. But, you know, even now, I mean, he goes out plenty, but he also sometimes just really enjoys going upstairs and talking to his friends while he's playing the PlayStation. And it's just interesting to see how that's kind of taken over that generation, I think. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think there's a lot worse they could be doing. Like, this, that is social, like you say. It's also problem solving. And I sort of feel like there's a bit of snobbery about it and there needn't be. That's so interesting that you say that because early in the pandemic, you know, March through June of 2020, when 
school was shut down and they didn't, you know, the schools weren't really prepared for, I mean, they shouldn't have been prepared for it, but they weren't prepared for it. So everybody was shifting. There wasn't a lot happening. And he was up there so much. And at first I was like, oh, you know, this, you don't need to be doing that all the time. He's like, mom, that's the only way I'm actually interacting with my friends. And I just hadn't even thought about it. And I think you're exactly right. I think the, the problem solving aspects, but also the social aspects, you know, really did save him and gave him a way to interact with his friends that he would not have had. No, totally. So I had to kind of go back and say, I'm sorry. (laughs) I had to be like, okay, I'm sorry. You're right. (laughs) We've all been there. We've all been there. But yeah, I think, you know, why why is, you know, TV considered a lesser kind of form than reading, for example, when I I learn a lot from TV, I find it very educational at times and, and certainly for novel ideas. So it is interesting why we sort of have these prejudices about what is and isn't sort of worthy. Well, and that even happens in the book world. I mean, you know, there are some people that are pickier about the type of book you're reading and, oh, you're going to read a rom-com or, oh, you're, you know what I mean? Like, I just think people should read what they enjoy reading. And just because I don't read it doesn't mean that it's less worthy or more worthy or anything else. I think everybody should just find what they like to read and read it. I know. And you would never find this with like films. People wouldn't say, oh, it's just too gripping, you know? Like the way they do with books that like, it's almost like people think books shouldn't be read just for entertainment. Um, But actually film and TV is that, you know, you would never be like, oh, it's not worthy enough. Right. No, I agree with that. Well, Jillian, I have so enjoyed chatting with you. This was just wonderful. And I'm thrilled we got to talk all about Wrong Place, Wrong Time. And now I've got to go back and find the choice as well. So thank you for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you. You're so welcome. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books and recently came across book clubs, a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs, and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes, and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and that link is also in the show notes. I hope you will check out some other Thoughts from a Page episodes and have a great day. You've got questions, we've got answers. 
business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.